Hey, Sanctus, good morning. So glad that you're joining us again, maybe for the first time or the 20th time. No matter who you are, where you're coming from, glad you're here today. We're still in the book of Romans, so if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn there. We're going to walk into Romans 8 today. Uh, just when uh, winter began, uh, I pulled up to uh, a gas station and uh, I was almost out of gas. Have you ever sort of driven your car to the point where you're like, this is really stupid, like I'm almost really out of gas, it's sort of like by, driving by faith? Anyway, it was one of those days, uh, I drove into the gas station, finally made it there, I was like, I don't remember my car having this little gas in it. And so uh, I arrive and I get outside and I go to open the gas cap and I push on it. So I, I bought a used Mini a few years ago and so on a Mini uh, there's no sort of like little lever inside. you got to push on it and it pops out. And of course, the gas cap's inside. So I go outside and it was really cold that day. And so it's cold. I've got no gas. And so I push on the, the opening for the gas cap and it will not open. And I'm like, oh man, this is like, this is a bad scenario. Like if I can't get this open, I have no gas. People are behind me. Am I going to have to call like CAA? This is the dumbest thing. So I'm like, this always works. What's going on? So I push it again, I push it again, I push it again, thinking something's going to change, nothing changes. So then, and some of you have done this, I'm like, well, maybe if I just push it a little bit harder. So I use all my body weight, sort of push it, and it sort of clicks in, but doesn't click out. And I'm like, oh man, this is really bad. So I jump in my car, pull out my iPhone, and I Google basically opening uh, opening gas cap uh, mini. And I'm just like panicking now because I'm like, there's cars behind me. I've got to get out. I've got to drive. I can't drive. This is so embarrassing. Why isn't this working? And uh, so I go to Google and I look it up. And then this thing pops up that says, just so you know, um, with minis, if you don't unlock your car, the gas cap will never open. And so I didn't even know this. I was doing this out of habit that when I get out of my car and close it, I just lock my car. So Every time I locked my car, I was actually locking the gas cap. So I unlocked it, went around, pushed it, it popped open, no problem, filled up the gas tank and was able to go. Okay, that image is incredibly helpful as we get going today. Why? Well, number one, you can't drive a car without gas. Or if you have an electrical car, electric car, can't drive it without a charge. You, something has to power the car, number one. Number two, I, in that case was trying with all my power to open the car to get the gas in. And no matter how much I tried, it would not work. Actually, the more I did it in my own power, the more I was getting frustrated, I was getting angry, and also I was probably starting to damage the car. So then the third thing that happened, I want you to catch, is that I actually opened up something that was not me, a manual, an idea, a, a link somewhere else. It told me what to do, and then actually... I then took out my keys, which is not me, not my power. I pressed open and suddenly it opened. This is the process I want you to catch today. Without gas, you cannot go anywhere. If you try things in your own power, and this is to Christians, you're always going to fail. If you don't read the manual, you're not going to even know how to get the gas in the first place. And actually, you need still another power source, not only to drive the car, you actually need another power source even to open the car to do that. And why am I sharing all this? Because chapter 8, we're going to be here this week and next week, is all about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power and the battery to do everything in the car. And we continually try to drive our car, our Christian life, or open parts of our life, and we fall down every single time we use our own, our own power. See, last week in chapter 7, that was the summary of Paul's cry. This was disheartening, if you remember. It was honest. We almost want to leave chapter 7 quickly, but we shouldn't. 
Last week, Paul, the giant of the Christian faith, was transparent about his ongoing struggles in the Christian life. Romans 7.15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate to do, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am who's going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death. This is said by a powerful, loving, committed, all-in follower of Jesus. But he didn't end with the word wretched. Remember, he said this in verse 25, But thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, we all go, Okay, Paul, yes, Jesus is the one that helps us. And then I think most of us instinctually would say, But we all know that really life is going to be sort of broken and sucky down here. And actually, this amazing help is really in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns, right? And Paul would show up and go, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want every single Christian within the sound of my voice today to know, right now, if you're a Christian, life, that is Christian life, and victory, and even hope, is not just a future thing, but can be experienced in large part in our life now. Now, he would also want to know, every single person listening to me, that if you're a seeker today, or a skeptic today, or you're not a Christian at all, or you're Christian-ish in name only, or you're spiritual, or you come from another faith, that everything that I'm going to preach on, everything Paul's going to explain today, is real, it's free, and it also can be yours if you embrace the giver of all good gifts, that's God, found fully and only through Jesus. This can become your reality too. This is not just a conversation for Christians. Paul basically turns around and he's about to say to us, no more defeat. No more living a powerless Christian life. No more living in the shadows. No more confession without life change. He says, listen, I've shown from my own life that when we rely on our own power to do the Christian walk thing, we always fail. Every single time we try opening the car or driving the car in our own power without an external power source, it all falls apart. But Paul says, but we don't need to live like that because God has given us his Holy Spirit. Now, up to this point, Paul in Romans has mentioned the Holy Spirit maybe two or three times. In chapter 8, Paul references the Holy Spirit 19 times. Why? Because the way we're delivered through Jesus Christ is found in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of the Holy Spirit, the blessed third person of the Trinity. See, Paul's second last cry, what a wretched man I am, even as a Christian, it was dark, it was desperate, it was lonely, it was futile. But now, like in this moment, it's like the sun breaks out, the darkness begins to disappear. It's like seeing for the first time. It's like having this weight sort of lifted off us unexpectedly. And Paul begins this sort of grand theme of liberation by starting like this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, because of everything I've already told you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> if you're a Christian today, you are no longer condemned. Now, Paul is using very... Um, important language here. It's forensic and legal imagery. He says, we have escaped the deserved sentence of spiritual death and God's wrath that we justly earn because of our sin, because of the work of Jesus, which ends up in this word justification. That is, we are made in good standing. We are made righteous. We are acquitted. We're guilty, but God in his mercy declares us not guilty because Jesus has paid the penalty for us. We're put into right relationship with the Father and all of our sins, past, present, and future, are accounted for, dealt with, and they're removed. Now, there's more to this. 
we're not just in right standing. We're also free from the power of sin now. We're condemned not, we are not condemned to live a life of non-victory. Now, all of this is true. It says, if you are in Christ Jesus, remember Romans 8.1, for those that are in Christ Jesus. Okay, hold on, hold on. Very churchy phrase. What does it mean to be in Jesus Christ? Well, it doesn't mean I go to church. This is not being a Christian in name only, or I come from a family that's Christian, or my grandmother's Christian, or I come from an ethnic group that is Christian and not Muslim, or Christian and not Buddhist. No, no, no. It's not liking Jesus as a teacher. It's not liking Jesus as a thinker. It's not liking Jesus because he's a religious revolutionary, a political liberating revolutionary in your view. To be in Jesus implies a personal, vital, all-encompassing, ongoing relationship with the living Son of God. It is that you have called upon Jesus to be your personal Savior and Lord. Not your mom, not your dad, not your grandmother. Remember, Billy Graham brilliantly said, God has no grandchildren. Every generation makes its decision. It is to be like we found it in chapter 6, a slave to Jesus, to be more concerned about his agenda on earth and his kingdom. It's to be, as Jesus said in John 3, born again. It is to be in a radical, all-consuming slavery, which is, an, which is the only ownership that brings real freedom. Again, all of chapter 6. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's not saying the Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, I love, and we say in this church, and it says all the right things about Jesus. It's actually knowing the one the creed's about. It's union with Jesus. It's allegiance, truth, and power in that order. You can't have truth and power until you have allegiance, encounter, connection. Now, at this moment, Paul then turns and looks to the one that introduced you, if you're a Christian, to Jesus. Well, who introduced you to Jesus? Oh, it was the Holy Spirit. And notice, there's no talk of defeat anymore here. Yes, the conflict with sin in the world and the demonic goes on and on, but where the Spirit is, ah, there's freedom. Romans 8.2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, this is amazing. This is actually a name for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. And this amazing name goes all the way back to the second verse in the Bible, where it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaotic, destructive waters just, just before and during creation. So when God spoke, creation into being, and the Holy Spirit's involved in that process. Uh, so the same with us. God says, let there be light, there was light. Let there be life, and there was light. So the same, when you became a Christian, God declared, let there be light, let there be life. And who brought all of that into you? The Spirit. The law, the Ten Commandments, showed us our sin, stirred up sin, we sinned even more, we were condemned, but then the Holy Spirit brings us a new law that's stronger than sin, that brings forgiveness, and it's the opposite of sin. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He and He alone lets you know you're not condemned. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son, that's Jesus, in the likeness, notice this phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, really, really important, no matter who you are today. Notice the words describing Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. If Paul had said, in sinful flesh, then Jesus would have been sinful, had sin in him, and could never save us. If Paul had said a phrase like, like the flesh or likeness in flesh, he would have been saying Jesus appeared to be human, but really was never human. Well, that's not what he says. Paul is saying that Jesus is fully human, 
And we have also discovered he's fully God. And the Father sent Jesus. And when Jesus took on flesh, took on humanity, he never became a sinner. But God still placed all our sins upon him. Jesus never sinned, but our sins were placed on him. We learned about this in Romans 3.25. God presented the Messiah, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Okay, we're going to do this again. God presented Christ. Hear it again? Let it sink in again. God gave Jesus up and over. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decides to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that's free for us costs heaven everything. God gave Jesus up and over to deal with our sin. On Good Friday, the terrible events, the torture, the execution, the unjustness was God's very plan to bring deliverance to the world and deliverance to us. Now, some people say, see, this is why I hate the Christian faith. It's some weird cosmic child abuse. The father's forcing the son. And No, Jesus is equal with the father. God within himself so loved the world that he sent himself. That's the whole point of the Trinity. Another person wrote this, and man, I'd really beg you to lean in. Ready? Jesus' teaching and miracles and sinless life were very important in Jesus' earthly ministry. But Jesus' supreme purpose in coming to earth was to be an offering for sin. Without the sacrifice of himself for the sins of the world, everything else Jesus did would have still left people in their sins, still separated from the Father. Here it is, ready? To teach that people can live a good life by following Jesus' example is foolish and patronizing. Try to follow Jesus' perfect example without having his own life and the power of the Spirit within us is more impossible and more frustrating than trying to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. See, Jesus' example cannot save us. Oh, you're going to hear a lot of churches teach this. Oh, be like Jesus. And and Jesus is the great moral example. Let me say that. Jesus' example cannot save us but instead further demonstrates the impossibility of saving ourselves by our own efforts at righteousness. The only hope people have for salvation from their sin is that they trust in the offering for sin that Christ himself makes at Calvary. And when he became that offering, he took upon himself the penalty of death for the sins of all of us. This was exactly prophetically uttered 740 plus years through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did it to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. It's our sins. He took the punishment and and made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. God did all of this? Yes. And why? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit ready 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 jesus who is fully god and fully man obeyed the law perfectly in its entirety and because of his work we now through him get to join this amazing new community that's based in the spirit and his covering work allows us to walk in the spirit now paul then stops And he decides to show us the mentality between those who are followers of Jesus 
and those who are not. Two totally different worldviews. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on fleshly desires. And by the way, I'll just stop. Fleshly desires can be spirituality, religion, agnosticism. It can go a thousand directions. But those who live according with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, those who are not saved, those who are in sin, cannot, whoa, very un-Canadian, cannot please God. Without Jesus, we have a very distinct pattern, worldview, and mindset. People do not crave the things of God and don't want the God revealed in Jesus. And in the grand sense, without the Spirit, you're left with spiritual death, hostility towards God, and inability to submit to God, and there's no real value for life or God or God's love. So, ready? No one that has not encountered Jesus cannot please God because they've not accepted the one that did please God perfectly. Any person on earth that has not met Jesus cannot please God because they've not trusted in the one who actually did it perfectly. You can be the most religious, spiritual, kind person on earth, but you're still trusting in you. Then Paul says, oh, but some of you became Christians. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You're now in the realm of the spirit. And if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Messiah, they don't belong to Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, whoa. Without the Holy Spirit, you do not belong. You are not saved. You're still condemned. You're not a child of God. You can't call God Father, let alone Abba. Only through the Spirit is Jesus revealed. Only through Jesus can you see the Father fully. No Spirit, no Jesus, no Jesus, no Father, no Father, no relationship, no relationship, no life, no being who we were created to be, to enjoy God and enjoy Him and know Him forever. But those who do know God, if Christ is in you, verse 10, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is present, and as we allow Him to fill us, we get filled with the ethos of Jesus. Now, the tension of living in the now and not yet is hard. We live in bodies that are dying. We still struggle, struggle with sin, but there is a power source in us that is stronger. That is why Paul says next, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because the Spirit who lives in you. Okay, mm, so good. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, if you're a Christian, is literally in you. Every Christian on earth is possessed by something that is not human. Every Christian on earth is possessed by a Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And think about the hope and the truth and the power of this. Think about the power that's resident in you, resident in me. This is not myth. This is not allegory. This is not utopian idealism. Jesus was risen from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6.14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. He will raise us also. So we should be like, oh my goodness, thank you, God, our souls cry out, that you'd love us like this, that death is not the end. Death doesn't have the final say. Just as Jesus was physically, physically raised from the dead, so we will physically be raised from the dead. And all of this happens through the Holy Spirit. He brings us alive at conversion so we even get to see Jesus in the first place and get gas in the car and open the tank. But more than that, you're telling me that death isn't the end because just like Jesus was physically raised by the power of the Spirit, so the same with me? 
Yes. But then Paul says all that is true. But then, of course, we have to live in conjunction with the Spirit. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We have, a, we have to do this thing. It is, it is not to the flesh and to live according to it. No, for if you live according to sin, fleshliness, you're going to die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. See, we're free, and we have to keep walking in this new given freedom. We must live in the truth that this freedom does cost us the old love and the old life we had. And this obligation is to be followed. But you can only do it, like we found out last week, through the power of the Spirit. But Paul says it's not a future thing. You can do it now. And then it happens. This is like, this is again like an epic sunrise. This is like when you're looking at a flower and suddenly it opens and you see it in all of its beauty. He speaks life into our lives marked by gray and ink black. He speaks into the essence of who we are. He speaks into us. He speaks over us. He clarifies and gives identity. He, he actually makes sure the wellspring of our life is clean. He declares the truth of who we are because of him. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now this matters. This really matters. We need to undo some bad thinking in the church. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being on earth is more important than trees and monkeys and whales, though they're all important, and stars, because we are the only ones in creation that are made in the image of the Creator. So God is our Creator, yes, but not all human beings are children of God. I know lots of songs say that. I know lots of Christians even say that. It's just not true. You only become a child of God when you receive the Holy Spirit. And you only get the Holy Spirit when you receive Christ. See, the most religious person on earth at this very moment is not a child of God because they have not embraced the person, work, and saving power of Jesus that allows you to become a child of God. But when you do accept Jesus, everything changes, the Spirit of God moves in, and you become a child. Let me read the verse again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now, this leading, don't, don't let this mislead you. Okay, this is not saying the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, do I go to Panera or do I go to McDonald's? He's going to say, don't do both. You don't have money for either of them. Don't buy a Big Mac. Eat a salad. Like, he probably will tell you to eat the salad. This is not saying, Lord, do I go to this university or that university? Should I be married or should I not be married? All of those things are important. God cares about these details. But that's not what this verse is about. This verse is saying the Spirit of God leads you to understand the core of who you truly are. And that's why it says in verse 15, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a, sin, a slave to sin, death, and the demonic. Chapter 6. We have now been emancipated. We're no longer under the control of a dark master, a thug, telling us what to do, where to go, when, and we have no... See, God has purchased us. We are his, and he is our new master. And again, he has love and joy and peace, and he's always patient, and he's kind, and he's good, and he's faithful, and he's gentle, and he's always controlled, and he never lashes out. He says, okay, we're adopted, and then he says, we're adopted into sonship. All right. We miss this in English, and we actually miss this as modern readers. Every Roman hearing this 2,000 years ago, for the first time, knew exactly what Paul meant. 
So you can't say you've become a son or daughter of adoption, in adoption here, because it actually is a specific thing. Sonship here is a legal standing. So you might know a guy named Octavian. He was Caesar Augustus. He was actually, during Jesus's time, the most significant Roman ruler. He's still considered one of the most significant rulers. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, why does that matter? Well, listen to what one historian said. In the first century, an adopted son was a legal position. It wasn't just all adoption, it's specific. It was, it was an adoption of a son deliberately chosen by the father to perpetuate his name, inherit his estate. He was not inferior in status to a son born in, in an ordinary way. And actually, usually the adoptive son actually enjoyed the father's affection more, got the whole estate, and actually, rep, actually followed in his father's footsteps more. So here's the point. When Paul says that we are adopted in a sonship, he is saying, hey, I want to remind you, Christian, none of us are born into the faith. There's no inherited faith here. It's all adoption-based. And he chooses this Roman idea of adoption because he's basically saying, hey, you're adopted into this, which means you're going to look like me. I've chosen you, and you get the whole estate. We're called and adopted. This takes us to the pinnacle of our personal faith and our shared faith. We get to call the God of the universe, the only true living God, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We get to call the eternal one, Abba, dear father, dad, daddy. Now Jews 2,000 years ago called God father in worship, but never like this. Now I just want to pause and I want you to hear this. One theologian and historian said, Jesus alone used this phrase, Abba, with God. And this was no doubt considered scandalous by his enemies. Jesus, ready, through the Spirit, has given us, has given you, his own special name for the Father. And it has become our natural cry to a loving dad. Abba, Father, we say it so easily. It is a unique name given to Christians for God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we're God's children. If we're his children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us time and time again to one place, to one declaration, to one grounding, to that all-life-consuming, life-changing, life-giving moment. The Creator looks at you and myself with all our good and bad and sin and family history and says with a smile, which is, again, indescribable, you're my precious kid. And we get to run back to him and say, yeah, and you're my dad. It's like jumping on the bed and say, can I just hang out? Of course you can. Other than God's worship, he shares everything with us. Have you thought about that? Pause, just take that in. This has been like a freight train of hope. <laughs> and then it comes to a stop. We go, wow, thanks, Paul. That was really helpful. Thanks, God, for your word. And we're like, but what about life? I mean, have you seen life? What about all the crap and the boring days and the injustice and the evil and the famines and the wars and the, the human traffic? Like, and look at my own struggle. Like, and Paul would say, man, thank you so much for asking that question. As one per person brilliantly said, groans and glory in the now and not yet are not mutually exclusive. They live together. Paul would say, and God's word, of course, he was writing, says, I've taught you how the Holy Spirit's liberated you. But Paul doesn't dismiss pain. He puts pain in perspective. Indeed, verse 17, second half. 
If we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth, worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, this is not some guy living an amazing life who's hardly suffered saying, no, no, it's worth it. I've considered it. Look at my life. When Saul became Paul, he lost almost, if not all, his family and friends. When he became a Christian and followed Jesus, he lost his whole status. He lost his whole reputation. He lost his finances. He lost his job. He lost his academic standing. And then he goes out, and as he's trying to tell people about the good news, he's been stoned and robbed and beaten and whipped and shipwrecked and almost killed multiple times. And then Paul comes along and says, by the way, I just want to share with you, all this present suffering is actually nothing compared to what's about to come. He says, verse 18, I've considered this. I've thought this over. I've weighed the evidence, and I'm just telling you, stuff sucks here, but the glory that's coming, it's almost too much to handle. C.S. Lewis uh, preached a very famous little sermon called The Weight of Glory. Some of you will know it. And what's so interesting is he brilliantly summarizes all the promises of Scripture in five simple ways. He says, do you understand all the promises, especially the New Testament? Here they are. One, we're going to be with Jesus. Two, we're going to be like him. Three, we're going to have glory. Four, we're going to eat with him. We're going to be with him, but eat with him. Five, we're going to have some official position in the universe. Be with Christ. Be like Christ. Share in his glory. Uh, We're going to eat with him. Uh, We're going to be with him and have an official position. Now, then this is what he says in his sermon. Remember, he's writing a long time ago in an English context, but it's great. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised even in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go making on mud pies in a slum because they cannot even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Okay, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up the second half of chapter 8 next week, and it's so good. But here's the question, so what? Okay, another sermon, more information, and? Well, (laughs) It's true of all parts of Scripture, but especially this one. If this becomes more than an intellectual exercise, this becomes revolution. This is not another sermon. As Jesus used to say and the prophets, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. One, if you're a Christian here today, we must root ourselves in what God actually says over us. Our identity is not based in what we do, what other people say, or life circumstances. It is what he declares. So I want you to be encouraged today. I want you to hear the truth of God that has been declared over you. Romans 8, one person said, is the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian faith because this is how God the Father, through Jesus by the Spirit, makes you his own. Ready? You're not condemned by God. Lots of people are condemned by God right now. You're not. You're not controlled by your sin. You are filled with God's Spirit. You have been bought and covered By Jesus. We see the loving work of the triune God for us. We have a calling father. 
we have one who has substituted his life for us. Uh, you could call it a substituting brother. You actually have the Holy Spirit. The one who tells you that you're loved, gives you the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, reminds you and guarantees your adoption, lets you know you're God the Father's child, you're co-heirs with Christ. And all of this stuff gives us two things that are fought for, longed for, fantasized over, sung about, pined for, warred for. It's this, security and identity. Security and identity. One person said this, the feelings of being rejected is all too common in our world. Husbands reject wives, wives reject husbands, the divorce rate goes up. Parents reject children, children reject parents, high school students reject the other because they're not in the right group. Every reader can fill in the blank of their own experience of rejection. The sad fact, and this was written a while ago, is it is increasingly difficult to find a secure and permanent relationship anywhere. As a result, people feel even more uneasy and more uncertain. He, him talking in his own context says, I know some wives married for 25 years to loving husbands who find it hard to trust their husband because of all the broken marriages they see around them. And I would add, the reverse is also true. The best intentioned spouse can die at any time. But what our fellow human beings can never supply, God does. In the midst of our disillusionment and doubt, God offers the most secure relationship imaginable. Adoption into his own eternal family. The implication of the security, because it can never be stolen or taken from you. Can't. The, the revolutionary nature of the security is actually identity. And the freedom Years ago, a pastor wrote this. Uh, I'd beg you now to lean in. So what do we need to do? I mean, what's the obligation? The answer is uncomplicated. It's difficult to do because our flesh will not surrender easily. But the answer is straightforward. Nothing. Nothing. What? You say, hold on, you don't need to pray, I don't need to get up 4 a.m. for a quiet time, I, I don't have to have family devotions every day, I don't have to give all my money away, I don't have to shower every day, I don't have to obey the Ten Commandments, I don't need to wear dark clothing or eat low-fat foods or do a pile of good deeds to become more spiritual. No. Nothing. If the Spirit of Jesus is in you, you're as spiritual as you're ever going to be. Hello. If there's an imperative to be found in Paul's description of the Spirit, he writes, and the Spirit's life, is to quit trying to be so spiritual. Stop all of that. Instead, let the Spirit be spiritual. When this makes sense to you, when you get this, you can be sure you're setting your mind on things of the Spirit and you're starting to understand grace. Until then, you will not be ready to accept Paul's teaching in the second half of, the, uh, the second half of Romans. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. It's wild. You're never going to be more spiritual than you are right now if you're a Christian. In the sense, positionally, the Spirit of God is in you. You're never going to be loved more by God, the Father, right now than you are loved right now. Because He loves you. We are positionally coerced with Christ. The Spirit of God is in us. God is our Father. Jesus is our High Priest and our Brother. The Spirit of God is present. Now, are we called to live a holy life? Yes. Are we called to do spiritual disciplines? Yes. To use gifts? Yes. But the point is we do all of that not because to get His love. and out of, We do it just because we love Him. 
You don't do it to become more spiritual. You already are this thing. Just act that way in his power. By the way, one last thought for the week. You don't have to give in to sin, nor do I. Think about the power that's actually in you. You've got literally an eternal nuclear reactor inside of you. Again, like I said, not myth, not utopian idealism. This, this is not cognitive therapy. Think better things and you're going to be okay. Right? No. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you, so Jesus can overcome death and sin in you. We are called, that's the Holy Spirit, to raise up parts of our broken lives to realign them with the Father. We reject the idea. We actually say what I'm about to say is a lie next. This idea that God helps those who help themselves is from the pit of hell. That is not from our side. That, that, that is so nice and so wrong. It's so twisted. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.17 now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. The invitation this week, as you talk in your connect groups or reflect on this in your own walk with Jesus, is this. Will I fully accept what God says over me as true identity? Where do I need to choose freedom that is already given? Where do I need to choose freedom that's already given? Where do you struggle the most in your Christian walk? Gluttony, lust, anger, lying, stealing, secret. Where do you need to choose freedom that you've already been given? You want to drive the car? <laughs> you want to open the gas tank? You must ask for the power of the Spirit to do it. If you're a seeker, the question is, do you even want all that God is offering? Let me just pray that God helps all of us this week. So thanks, Father, for calling us. Thank you, Jesus, for being a substitute for us, a big brother for us, a sacrifice for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our comfort, our truth giver, a truth teller, and giving us power that's not our own. Number one, I pray that we would live under and live in the reality of what is true that you've said over us. Build in this church identity that makes no sense but is godly. And then, Holy Spirit, would you begin to bring into people's minds the places they continually struggle, but you've already given freedom. We just need to choose freedom and walk in a new power. Would you begin to work that out? And for others who have not embraced Jesus, haven't understood the Spirit, may you open their eyes so they can actually encounter Jesus and ask him to become everything that he's already done in their own life for their salvation. Lord, keep working out this beautiful, ancient faith that's so relevant for today. We pray this in the name of God the Father who called us, in the name of God, of God the Son who died for us and rose for us and prays for us, in the name of God the Holy Spirit who gives us power and guarantees resurrection. Amen.